We are in the book of Daniel. Who's enjoying the book of Daniel? Yeah. Oh, I certainly are. We are looking at a tale of two kingdoms. We are talking about this idea that Daniel is not just a story about what did happen. It's a story about what always happens. Uh, and we're looking at the idea that it's not just about Babylon uh, and, and Daniel existing in Babylon, but it's about the spirit of Babylon versus the spirit of God. It's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Babylon, a kingdom that was in existence at the beginning of time uh, with Genesis, and we see it all the way through to the end of Revelation, in Revelation 18, where God throws Babylon down. Uh, and we have now come to Daniel chapter Five, uh, a famous passage, the writing on the wall. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's so many sayings and phrases that we have in our common vernacular which come from Scripture and we probably don't even realise. The writing on the wall is one of those. Um, but I'm not going to title this message The Writing on the Wall because I think there's a better title. And for those of you who are note takers, the title for this message is going to be Trust Your Mum. How many of you know that sometimes it's best just to trust your mum? You with me? I've got this vivid memory of, my, uh, we were about to have a piano lesson and Phil and I were out there riding our bikes on the road and I don't know what bike I was riding but it wasn't built for doing little jumps and we had, you know, the old gutters and you'd have the little ramp off the gutter and as a kid you'd be like riding that, you'd hit the gutter and you'd up you'd go. So I thought I was getting mad air but I was probably getting about that much air. There's me and Phil out riding our bikes and I've like hit a jump and I've landed on the front wheel and I've gone over the handlebars and smashed my face onto the bitumen on the road. I'm lying there crying and losing the plot and Phil sort of just comes over he's just looking at me lying in the middle of the road and he's just staring at me <laughs> what do I say get mum <laughs> get mum and he's just like well should we get off the road I'm like just get mum because sometimes you need your mum sometimes you need your mum and what we're going to see in this passage is King Belshazzar encounters God and he needs his mum. Because mum comes and encourages him with a word in season that he needs to hear. It's an amazing passage of scripture. I am so excited to hear what God has got for us. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, just bring this word and ram it home into our spirits, Lord. Let us take uh, not just knowledge, Father God, but revelation. Lord, take this word, your living word, Breathe on it and may it bear root in our lives that we might bear fruit, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so chapter 5, 1 through 4, here we go. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand, a thousand of his nobles. It's a big banquet. That's not including like families and servants. It's a thousand nobles, Belshazzar. That's a big banquet. And drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, is an interesting party, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them as they drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. 
All right, who needs some history? Let's put, context brings clarity. Let's, what the heck is going on here? Last chapter was chapter four and we had King Nebuchadnezzar raising his eyes towards heaven and we had him having this revelation of, of who God is and we talked about this idea of a transformed life that, even, that God can get someone even like Nebuchadnezzar, he can bring him home. Now we're hearing King Belshazzar. Who is King Belshazzar? What the heck is going on? Uh, and why is he drinking goblet from goblets of gold? All right, context, this is 30 years on from last chapter, 30 years have passed, King Nebuchadnezzar has died after 43 years of reigning as king over the Babylonian empire, right, his, his uh, son-in-law, a guy called Nabonidus, everyone say Nabonidus, is now on the throne, right? But Nabonidus is an interesting sort of king that the people kind of had a love-hate relationship with. He got to the throne by committing some, um, let's say, morally dubious behavior, aka murder. So he's worked his way to the throne. He's married uh, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter to sort of secure that position of, of kingship. Um, but he's not really a military leader, He's more of a librarian, right? And for the people of Babylon who love their brawn and love their, their gruff military leaders, they look at him and there's almost this disdain that they have for him because he was this person of antiquity. So he spent heaps of his time away from the great city of Babylon, traveling the empire, like collecting information and data and all this sort of gear, right? That's Nabonidus. So what that meant was while he was away doing what he was doing, he put his son, a guy called Belshazzar, everyone say Belshazzar, in charge. He was co-regent. And Belshazzar was that military boss, right? Belshazzar was a bad man. He was known as a very, like, he was a brutal, evil man. And people also, the people of Babylon, actually, they did not like this guy either. And one of the reasons they didn't like him was because he actually did this political move where he murdered the brother of one of Babylon's greatest military commanders, a guy called Gabrias. Everyone say, Gabrias, how's your history lesson going? So Belshazzar murders this sort of much beloved and famous military commander. He murders his brother and that guy, Gabrias, he actually leaves Babylon and defects to Persia. So he goes to Cyrus the Great and says, I'm done with that nation, I'm yours. And funnily enough, he actually becomes the architect of the military move, which leads to the downfall of Babylon that we're going to see at the end of this chapter. There's something in there about integrity, there's something in there about character, there's something in there about humility. Because what we see in these first four verses of Daniel chapter 5 is the epitome of pride. This is the epitome of pride. Because the other thing that we need to understand as we're reading this is that Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great, has actually rallied his forces against the Babylonian Empire. And because Nabonidus is off doing his things, Nabonidus, not much of a military man, has come against Cyrus the Great. And actually Cyrus the Great, the Medo-Persian Empire, has had significant victories in the north and the east of Babylon. And they've overthrown many of the Babylonian townships. And this vast, massive army 
now stands at the walls of Babylon. They are encircling the great city of Babylon. They have laid Babylon to siege. And Belshazzar, the people disgruntled, the army in trouble, the city surrounded, says, I know what we'll do, let's party. This is the epitome of pride. Why is he throwing a party? What is he doing? What is going on here? Why would Belshazzar, with the city surrounded by this enormous threat, why would he go, hey, it's a great idea, let's just throw a party and get drunk as skunks? And the reason is, is because he is so arrogant. He is so arrogant because in his mind, Babylon is impenetrable. The great city of Babylon, the great city of Babylon had outer walls that were about 30 kilometers in length. Those walls were eight meters thick. Think about that for a second. Eight meters thick. You could ride a chariot and the chariot could go a full U-turn on the wall. These walls were 30 meters high. And then all around those walls were actually then watchtowers, another 30 meters, 60 meters in the air, right? This great city then had moats and inner walls and the Euphrates River, or the Euphrates River, depending how you want to say it, actually ran through under the walls through the city. They had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world in the Babylonian hanging gardens, right? They had wealth, they had resource, they had protection. Babylon basically didn't matter. Persia could sit outside the wall for the best part of 10 to 20 years without even affecting their way of life. They had everything they needed. They could grow their crops. They could, you know, they had all their wealth. They had water. They had everything they needed. And so he's like, whatever, bro. You can put your army out these walls. I know you're not going to scale them. There's no way you're knocking down these walls. We'll just sit up there in our watchtowers taking pot shots at you. And while you're, my soldiers are doing that, I'm going to drink. Because you can't overthrow me. My gates are made of bronze. You cannot enter this city. And so what does he do? He parties. But more than parties, he takes the goblets of Jerusalem and he drinks wine. And what does he praise? He praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Why? Why are they worshipping these things? Because he's got them. That's what he's trusting in. He's like, ha ha! So who do you think you are, Cyrus? I've got gold, I've got silver, I've got iron, I've got bronze, I've got walls. You can't beat me. I'm Belshazzar. Who do you think you are? I'm going to worship these things because this is where my trust is. This is where my strength is. And it's also where folly is. Utter foolishness. This is the epitome of of pride, because pride comes before a fall. Pride is the posture of looking down on everyone else, saying, I know best. 
Humility is the posture of looking up to God and saying he knows best. I've got a great friend, I've quoted this many times, but it stays with me. He said, humility is not stooping below yourself. Humility is standing at your true height in the presence of a holy God and marveling at how insignificant our greatness is. Belshazzar is full of pride and just in case you're wondering, God seems to take issue with humans' pride. You remember that old boat, the Titanic? Spoiler alert, they made a movie about it and guess what? It sunk. Do you know what they said about that before it went off on its maiden voyage? Not even God could sink this. God's like, ah, pride, iceberg, straight ahead. God seems to take issue with the pride of humanity, doesn't he? And he sees Belshazzar in this moment, and interestingly, in the same way that King Nebuchadnezzar had lifted up his head and was looking down on everyone else, and God came and he said, you're going to be like an animal in the field, and God gave him seven years. In this moment, something very different happens because God has had enough. And friends, this is such a great encouragement to all of us because sometimes in life we're sitting underneath someone or the oppressive regime of someone or you know we're sitting there going God why are you allowing this why are you allowing things to happen in our government why are you allowing things to happen in my family why are you allowing things to go on and the promise of God is that a time will come when he will draw a line in the sand and he'll say enough is enough is enough and he will put an end to it that is the promise of God in scripture that is the promise of God throughout history that is the promise of God in Christ to his people that a day will come when he will roll the heavens up like a scroll and he will set all things right for all of eternity, amen? That's the promise of God. Belshazzar is walking in the epitome of pride and here's just one thing that God's laid on my heart this morning. Let's not be so harsh to criticize Belshazzar because let's be honest, if the same fortune and fame and riches were given to us, would we be any different? Would we act any differently? Like we say, what a fool. But don't we walk in pride every single day? How often do we forsake the promise of God for us? Like there's so many areas in life where we, we there and we raise a metaphorical goblet of worship to sex, we raise the metaphorical goblet of worship to wealth. We do this, like I was thinking about this, like every single time, and I haven't wanted, I didn't want to talk about this, like I've wrestled with God, last night I was going, don't make me talk about this, but I'm going to because he just kept saying you have to, and I want to talk about the tithe, because we don't talk about that very much. Well, we don't talk about money much in this church. You know my heart on this. We don't stand up here and play the spirit keys and manipulate people into giving money. That's not who we are, right? But do you know that every single time that we fail to bring the tithe, what we are doing is we are showing a belief that fundamentally I am more powerful and more able to supply my needs than he is. What we are doing is believing a lie. Actions reveal belief. What we are doing every time that we do not bring the tithe into the storehouse, we are walking in that sin of pride. We're saying, no, no, God, you're like, you can't meet my need. I'll meet my need and I'll give you the dregs. 
This is true. This is true. You see, Paul says, each one must give as he has decided to give in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we say, we're not under law, Dave, we're under grace. I'll give what I want. Yes, that's true, but since when is grace licensed for disobedience? Since when is grace less? Now, grace is always go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, give them your coat. That's what grace is over and over and over again. You have heard it said, but I say, but then when it comes to money, we love to say, oh yeah, but I'm under grace. Actually, no, God says, I've given you a promise and that promise is bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not throw open the store gates of heaven. And he actually, like, the reason I'm sharing this is because God actually convicted us on this hugely about 10 years ago. Because I was there going, God, I love you. You know, we're going, God, you've got us. Our lives are yours. Like, use us for your glory. Use us for ministry. Use us in whatever way you want to use us, Lord. Our lives are yours. And we just felt that gentle whisper of God saying, no, they're not. I was like, I beg your pardon, God. He's like, no, they're not. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I haven't got your money. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also which means that your heart is actually in your self-sufficiency, not in my supply. And he goes, if you just begin to bring the tithe, even though you think, oh, I don't have enough, but if you begin to trust me at my word, what you are revealing is a humility because you're saying, I'm not the one who's Lord of my life, you are. And believe me at my promise, the tithe is not about being bound to a law. That's not what it is. It's not about saying, no, I'm going to live legalistically. No, the tithe is actually about believing a promise of God. It's about submitting to the promise of God and realizing that he is who he said he is. That he cares about me more than you care, than I care about myself. That he cares about you more than you care about yourself. And that's just one way that we walk in pride because fundamentally it's the same sin. It's the sin of pride. I've got this God. You can have this, and you can have this part of my life, and you can have this part of my life. This part I'm a bit insecure about giving you. I think I'll just look after myself because I've got more power and authority to deal with that than you do. It's awfully quiet in this church. It's true. And I say it not to bring condemnation, but to reveal something within us. Because where our treasure is, there our heart is. And it can be a whole heap of things. You know, that's just one little example. There's so many examples. We're just like Belshazzar. And this is the point. We need a Daniel. This is the point. We need God to come and rescue us from this life of sin, to come and rescue us from this life of pride, that we would have a revelation of our rottenness, our wretchedness, as the songwriter said, that we would come to this point in life and say, God, I am like Nebuchadnezzar. I am like Belshazzar. I'm constantly puffed up in pride. I need you to rescue me and to set me free. And so then we come to verse five and we see the power of God to do just that, what he will do for those who walk in pride. Verse five, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together. 
The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, the wise men. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, who reads this writing and tells me what it means, will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. All right, there's so much good stuff in this. Firstly, the finger of God, right? The finger of God. This is a particular picture that actually points to old prophecies in Scripture, right? In the book of Exodus, how did, what, did the, what did the magicians say? Exodus 8, what did they say about God when he brought the plague of gnats? What did they say to Pharaoh? They said, ha, we can't repeat this. This is only of the finger of God. How did God inscribe the Ten Commandments for how we're supposed to live? By his finger. You know, how did, how did um, Jesus cast out devils? It says he cast out devils by the finger of God. This speaks to the power and authority of God. If you, you think, like, I'll just, there's that, you know, that saying, that idea of, well, I'll just do that with my little finger. You know, that whole idea. This is about how easy it is for God. Where we strive and we, we, uh, Use all our strength and every, our might and everything within us to make something happen. God's like, do you know what? I can just raise up and tear down a kingdom by my word, by my little finger. This is just the finger of God. It's speaking of the power and the authority and the grandeur of the great king of heaven. Secondly, when it says that the, uh, that the king's it says his face turned pale, he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Do you know what the literal translation of that is? It's that the joints of his loins were loosened. <laughs> he pooed himself. <laughs> Belshazzar saw the finger of God appear and start writing on a wall in the midst of his pride and his drunkenness, like, look how good I am. And he was so scared he pooed his pants. <laughs> how good is that? He was so terrified of what was going in. The color drained from his face. And this isn't on account of bad sushi, friends. This is on account of sin. Because of his sin, because of his pride, he's like, oh my goodness, I've just encountered something I've never seen before. This is beyond me. Ah! And he poos his pants. It's so fantastic. And then what we see is he then gathers the wise men. He's like, come on, all the wise men, come and answer this. Give me reason. Show me what's going on here. And this is so interesting because this is the same habit that Nebuchadnezzar had. This is what we've seen all through this book, that we gather the wise men. And what do we see every single time? Nothing. The wise men never, ever, 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 ever can bring the revelation of God. There's a word in this about the wisdom of God and the foolishness of man. And here's the question to us that I felt God lay on my heart this week of who do we go to when things are getting difficult? We constantly, in our world, we're constantly going to the wisdom of this age. We're constantly seeking after what this person has to say or what that person has to say. We're seeking uh, wisdom from the wise and God says, no, I have frustrated the wisdom of the wise. The wisdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's what? It's the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher, the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Friends, the message of Christ is foolishness to our world, but it is the wisdom of God. If we go to the wise men, if we go to the philosopher of this day, if we go to the philosophy of our postmodern culture, we've been talking about this on a Tuesday night. You should come. We're talking about this idea that there's truth is now relative, that it is what you want it to be and what you want it to be. Your truth is your truth. It's nonsense. But to the world, they're like, yeah, that makes good sense. And then when you say, no, no, the wisdom of God is that God took on flesh, became a man, gave his life to set humanity free, they go, no, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, but it is true. It is true, and every single time man has a God-sized problem, the wisdom of men will never, ever, ever suffice. Only the wisdom of God. Because that is the power of God. Time and time again, God frustrates the wisdom of Babylon and reveals his truth by his spirit through a man called Daniel. Friend, true abundance, uh, true abundance is found in obedience is what we see here. As Daniel steps in to obeying God. True freedom is found in surrender. God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. So when he speaks, no one in Babylon can answer. This is what we see. Let's carry on. Verse 10. And here's where we get to what I think is the highlight of this whole chapter. Verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of his king and the nobles, came to the banquet. Now this queen, first thing, this is not uh, his wife because his wife would be with the wives and concubines who are already at the party. Are you with me? Because said his wives and his concubines were there. So the queen is most likely his mother or his grandmother. So it's either Nabonidus' wife or it's actually Nebuchadnezzar's widow. Yeah? Either way, sometimes you've got to trust your mum. And so the queen sees what's going on. She hears, she's like, oh, there's all sorts of shenanigans going on. She comes, she hears the voices of the king and his nobles, comes to the banquet hall. May the king live forever. She just brings this respect to start with. And she said, do not be alarmed. Don't look so pale. Get a hold of yourself, Belshazzar. <laughs> Pull yourself together, son. Get a hold of yourself. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. At the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar. So by father, it's talking about not necessarily actual father. It's, you know, that heritage father. So grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. 
I love that phrase, there is a man. I read this and I could not get past that moment. There is a man in your kingdom. There is a man. There is a man unlike any other man. Friends, this has to resonate with you. This resonated with me the same way that there was a woman who encountered Jesus at a well and then after a conversation, what did she do? She left and she turned to her whole village and she goes, there is a man. There is a man who told me everything that I ever did. He told me everything about myself. There is a man. Daniel is a type of Jesus, friends. Daniel is supposed to point us to Christ. That's what the whole Old Testament is doing. It is pushing you forward to the revelation of Christ. He's a messianic type, which means we see Daniel and we see Christ. There is a man in this kingdom. There is a man who has come for his people. There is a man unlike any other man. Do you know this language here that he uses is actually the same language used in the book of Isaiah chapter 8 to explain the Messiah who is to come. Understanding, wisdom, insight, knowledge, it's all the same language. We're supposed to get that link. When we read this, we're supposed to go, oh, this is, there's something deeper than this. This is pointing towards Jesus. This is pointing towards this Jesus who is to come, not just for Belshazzar, but for all of us, all of us stuck in the Belshazzar moment, all of us who are like, I need someone to make me clean. Do you know in 2 Timothy 2, let's go 2 Timothy 2. Because what did Belshazzar do? He went to the, he went to the, the treasury or where they'd taken the, the items and he took the vessels from the house of God. And then he desecrated them by offering them up in worship to wine and lust and power and all this other stuff. Do you know what we read in 2 Timothy? Paul says, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purpose and some for common use Those who clean themselves from the latter will be instruments or vessels for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. What are the vessels in the house of God today? Us. And here's the truth, because like Belshazzar, who gets caught up in his adultery and his idolatry and his lust and all this sort of stuff, we are vessels that are unclean. We're constantly giving ourselves over to the things of this world. We are those impure vessels. But there is a man. There is a man who comes and he can make that vessel clean. Purify yourself. How are we purified? By the blood of Christ. Jesus comes and he offers himself as a once for all sacrifice so that we could be clean. So that we could become a holy vessel, a useful vessel to the master, prepared to do any good work. There is a man who can take what is broken and make it whole. Friends, you're not getting excited enough about this. There is a man who can set us free from the chains that bind us. There is a man who can say, you don't have to live the Belshazzar life. There is a man who says, you don't have to go down the path of Babylon, of walking in the pleasures of Babylon. No, you can be like Daniel. You can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of the living God. The same Spirit who lived in Daniel, who dwelt in Christ and empowered Christ to do everything that he did, now lives in us. God has sent his Spirit to empower his church to be his hands and feet, to be Daniel's in the world. There is a man. There is a man. Friends, trust your mum. When your mum told you that there's a man, believe her and chase after her. I know you don't want to trust your mum. I know you're too cool and she's a bit old. Trust your mum. If your mum told you there's a man, go and seek out that man. And when you hear the voice of that man, do not harden your hearts as you have done in the rebellion, but humble yourselves because Belshazzar makes a grave mistake. And what we see here is the utter poverty and prosperity, the utter poverty of prosperity. But we also see the wealth of wisdom. Let's carry on, verse 13. I'm gonna read a big chunk of text right here. Is that okay? So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Oh, just pause. The arrogance of a man who's covered in poo His mum or his grandma has just said, there's a man who can change your world and bring revelation unlike anyone else. You've sought the wisdom of everything. You've tried everything. You've tried everyone. None of it's bringing freedom. None of it's bringing hope. None of it's bringing peace, just like the wealth of this world. And still, she goes, there's a man. And he comes into his presence and Belshazzar still just says, oh, you're just a slave. Who are you? He's the one who's going to bring revelation. He's the one who's going to change the world. Who are you? You're sitting in poo, mate. That's who you are. You're filthy and rotten. And how dare you stand up there and speak to Daniel with such arrogance? And yet he does. Because that is the poverty of prosperity mindset. That I can obtain everything. That's the poverty of pride. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and you have inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The, wis- the wise men enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Listen to this, this is so good. Then Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Ah, it's awesome. And your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I'll read that writing. I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. I love that. This is the difference between wisdom. This is what Daniel carries in him because his eyes are up. He understands who he is and who he serves. He understands the glory of the kingdom that is to come. And so when he sees the power and the passion and the prosperity of everything Babylon has to offer him he's like I don't want that a purple robe great you're gonna give me a position in Babylon fantastic guess what it's about to fall over champion there's a whole army at your gates about to come in and destroy you because that's what happens to the kingdoms of this world all of them fall down and yet we chase them and we claw and we want them we want position we want status we want power we want money gold chain oh that's going to be amazing Daniel's like it's useless I don't want any of it you can keep it but I will tell you what God says 
May we be like Daniel and not so captivated by the treasures of this world. Again, it reminds us of Christ, doesn't it? I said this last week. It reminds us of Jesus when the devil stands up there and says, all of this you can have if you worship me. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to worship anyone but the, the one true God of heaven. May we have such wisdom to understand that all the prosperity of this world is but naught compared to the riches that are in Christ. So he says, nah, I don't want to have it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And then what he does, I love this, he gives him a history lesson. This is classic old buck, 80 plus, Daniel's like, right you young buck. Let me tell you a thing or two. I could just tell you what it says, but I'm not going to do that because you need a history lesson. And not just a history lesson, you need the wisdom behind the history because that's what wisdom does. It learns from the past. And so then he goes on, he's like, look at your father, look what happened to him. Uh, God gave him the high position. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and fear him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hard-heartened uh, and hardened with pride, he was disposed from the royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth, and he sets them over every one he wishes. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing that the psalmist is saying in Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. When we understand that our life is but a breath here today and gone tomorrow. When we understand, and Belshazzar had the example of Nebuchadnezzar, 43 years, and in a moment, God made him eat like an animal. 43 years full of pride, and God humbled him in a moment. Belshazzar has this history. Belshazzar can look back and see. So can we look back and see what the Lord has done. Go back and see the faithfulness of our God through generation after generation after generation. Look back and see where the pursuit of wealth and fame and all these things leads us. He says, go back and see. Learn to number your days that you can get a heart of wisdom, Hebrews 11.25 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. We have to learn to number our days because it's in numbering our days and understanding how short our life is and how wonderful our God is and the, there's no way our minds can even fathom the eternal nature of our God. And yet if we learn to number our days, just maybe we'll get a heart of wisdom that sees God for who he is. Teach us to number our days. We might get a heart of wisdom. Verse 22 through to 30. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, you saw it all, you lived, well, you've heard everything that's happened and still you refuse to humble yourself. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, the things dedicated to God, and you desecrated them. You and your nobles, your wives and your concubines 
drank from them. Sacrilege, you praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone. You cannot see or hear, or which you cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds, his, who holds in his hand your very life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And here are what it means. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, which is the singular of parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was promoted to the third highest in the kingdom. Belshazzar still doesn't get it. This is a, don't you see the folly of the world? Oh, fantastic. You just told me my kingdom's coming to end. Have the kingdom. <laughs> oh, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is a prophecy fulfilled. And band, you can come up and we're going to close. But in Isaiah 13, we read this, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, all through the Old Testament where it was prophesied about this nation Babylon being raised up by God to bring Judah back to the heart of God. It was also prophesied over and over again that Babylon's pride would end up being the cause of its destruction. That God would not put up with it for too long before he actually said enough is enough. Jeremiah specifically said 70 years. How long has Daniel been in Babylon? Almost 70 years. Do you think Daniel was acutely aware of the prophecies of Jeremiah? Heck yes. Do you think Daniel knew that after faithfully serving God his entire life, in a world that was not his own, faithfully pursuing the true God of heaven and rejecting the pleasures of Babylon, do you think now in his 80s, that he is not longing for this moment, that he hasn't always been longing for this moment, on his knees praying, God, fulfill your promise, fulfill your promise, fulfill your promise. Daniel knows what's coming. He knows the army that waits at the gate. And still in all of this stuff, he has such integrity. Such integrity. I don't think he celebrates the end of Belshazzar. You know, he'd wished, it's clear that he wishes that Belshazzar would repent like Nebuchadnezzar repented. He wanted all, such an amazing man. Such an amazing man because he's filled with the Spirit of God. This is a prophecy fulfilled. And here's the interesting thing that Daniel's holding on to. Daniel understands that what God says stands. So he stands in what God has said. I'll say that again. Daniel understands that what God says stands. So he stands in what God said. The question to you and to me is will we rest in the promises of God? Do we know the promises of God? 
Are we chasing after the promises of God? Because the promises of God have power. You see, it's one thing to say, yeah, I have knowledge of this book. It's one thing to say that, yep, I know that Jesus is going to come back. It's one thing to say that, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for me. It's an entirely other thing to stand on the promise of God. It's an entirely other thing to look at Babylon, look at the world around us, and to then take our stand against the devil's schemes by the power of the Spirit. You see, Daniel stands his whole life. He was able to stand in the presence of a king because he knelt before the king of kings. His whole life, Daniel stood firm on the promise of God. He knew it was going to be 70 years, so he faithfully served Nebuchadnezzar. He faithfully ministered in Babylon. He never once compromised, but he lived that life of conviction and integrity the whole time. And now, as this kingdom comes to an end, there's Daniel faithfully still standing on the promise of God. So much so that when an inscription comes that no one else can interpret, who's there? Daniel's there. Belshazzar didn't even know who he was. He'd been rejected from the service of the king. He was now just an old man, like an old has-been. You're over there. But when push came to shove, there was Daniel still standing firm on the promise of God. There's something about a life of integrity, something about a life of faithfulness, something about a life of just giving over to God. Come what may, it doesn't matter if they kill you, they castrate you, whatever they're going to do to you. Stand firm on the promise of God because there is a man There is a man who has come for us. There is a man who has died for us. There is a man who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. There is a man who's given his spirit to empower his church, to be his hands and feet in the world. There is a man who is coming back on the clouds of glory with the hosts of heaven to roll it up like a scroll, to come and take his church and to establish his eternal kingdom forever. And all the kingdoms of men in all their glory will be but rot. All of them will fall. And every knee will bow before the glorious King of Kings. And my heart is that you, me, the church of Jesus Christ, that we would be there standing in the promise of God. Seventy years, friends. I get upset when God doesn't answer me and seven hours 70 years of the absence a perceived absence of God 70 years we have five chapters five stories surely in 70 years it'd just be a book that goes on and on and on it just makes me wonder if What if in these 70 years, what if there was 30 years of silence? And yet Daniel still stands. Because what God says remains. His promises are true and His faithfulness endures from generation to generation to generation. Stand to our feet. Father God, as we come before you today, our great prayer is that we would bow our knee to King Jesus. Our great prayer is that we would not be ensnared by the pleasures of Babylon. 
that we would not be captivated by the gifts of the kings of this earth. But that we, like Daniel, filled with your spirit, would be empowered to look up and to stand firm on the promise of God. There is a man. There is a man. At whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We give you honor, we give you glory, we give you praise. We're going to sing of the goodness of God. And I just feel like there's maybe some people in here who you're a, you know, what feels like 70 years. And for you, it's been very hard to sing of the goodness of God. I just want to speak over you today that what God says stands. So stand in what He said. Take hold of His promises. Veil yourself in Christ. Come to Jesus. Veil yourself in Christ. He is good. He is true. He is worthy. He is unchanging. He is consistent. He will wipe every tear from your eye. He is faithful. Stand in Him. Stand in Him. Because what He says will come to pass. This life is but a breath. But the life He gives will endure forever. We love you, Lord. We come before you. We bow before King Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.